You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Rachel Silverman, is a policy fellow at the Center for Global Development and is one of the co-authors of a, of a new report on an issue I will admit I hadn't ever thought about much, and it is lead poisoning and lead contamination in the global context. Uh, this is something I've written about a fair amount in the domestic uh, U.S. context and that uh, Joe Biden has announced some initiatives to try to tackle. Uh, but obviously, as with many things, the issue exists outside of America's borders as well. Um, and really, in, in this case, in, in a much more severe way, right? I mean, that's the the sort of the, the, the basic bottom line here. Yes, exactly. I mean, so what, what do we know about this? I mean, there's like broad picture, like what's, what's the scale of, you know, of lead poisoning globally? Where do we see the kind of biggest problems? Like, how, how should you think about this at a high level? So I think the first thing to say is the scale is enormous compared to anything we are currently experiencing in the U.S., but it is pretty analogous to what we have historically experienced in the U.S. So back in the day, we used leaded petrol. There was lead being released everywhere into the environment. Um, blood lead levels were almost universally very high up until the 70s when this was gradually phased out. So our grandparents' parents were all poisoned by lead in huge numbers. Now, thankfully, uh, since the 1970s, this when lead uh, petrol was phased out and lead paint in homes, lead levels have dropped enormously. So in the U.S., we really have a historical problem and an inequality problem where you have small portions of the population who are still exposed via lead pipes, via crumbling paint on old buildings. And they tend to be poor. They tend to be people of color. But the numbers are in absolute terms pretty small. Not to say it's acceptable, not to say we shouldn't do something about it. We should. But we're talking about maybe 2% or so of the population that has elevated blood levels above the five microgram per deciliter, which is a reference level set by the CDC. There's no safe level of lead. So this is kind of a reference level for tracking purposes. So about 2% of American kids are above this level. In the global context, about a third of kids worldwide are above this level, uh, about half of kids living in low and middle income countries, and about a third of kids in low and middle income countries are above 10 micrograms per deciliter, which is a even higher standard, which we have thankfully almost gotten rid of. And again, I think one way to think about it is if you think about the levels we saw in Flint, Michigan, during the height of their water crisis, that was about 5% of American kids in those cities who were being poisoned. And the kind of routine lead uh, exposure rate in, say, Chennai, India, is about five times higher than what Flint was at the worst part of the water crisis. And I mean, the, the Flint thing is, I, I think it's important for people to understand because that was so dramatic and it got so many people interested in, in lead. But the nature of it is that it's like, 
the, the water was fouled. So people started avoiding it, right? Which is different mm-hmm. from like historical lead in the United States was in the gasoline. So it was in the air. Everywhere. It was everywhere. And there was no, it's of course tragic to see, you know, people needing to use bottled water and, you know, not having safe, safe water in their homes. Uh, but when we had this much more serious historical uh, lead problem in the United States, it's because it was unavoidable. It wasn't a nuisance. It was ubiquitous in, in the air. And I guess that's what we're talking about globally. Is it, is it mostly just that lead was not phased out from, from gasoline as aggressively? So that's part of the story, although not by any means the full story. So we actually have made a lot of progress globally on that point. So as of 2002, there were still about, you know, 80 something countries that were using leaded petrol. Now we're down to one that has not completely phased it out. And that's Algeria. But basically, we have succeeded globally. You know, it's a great question. I'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) for uh, further investigation. Yeah. Um, I think they're in the process of phasing it out. Okay, uh, okay. So this has been a tremendous achievement, right? So, you know, some of the lead is still in the atmosphere. It's still in the soil. So that is one source of exposure. But we have made enormous progress on the lead petrol issue. But there are actually a lot of other sources of lead exposure that are pretty pervasive in low and middle income countries that actually we just don't have here in the U.S., just completely different routes. So there's, a, I mean, I can go into them. There's a few different uh, sources. So sure. one is uh, lead acid battery recycling. So those are all of our car batteries. Uh, they're often used for industrial applications as well. Thankfully, it seems like green energy technology is mostly moving away from lead acid batteries, but there's enough uh, demand for traditional lead acid batteries to be a pretty lucrative overall industry. Lead can be recycled. Okay. So you can, you know, the batteries only last a couple of years, but you can then recycle the lead and reuse it instead of just dumping it into the atmosphere, which is good. And when we do this in the U.S., we recapture about 95% of the lead from the batteries. Um, and any waste product is, you know, sort of sealed, stored, not released into the atmosphere. It's all done. Yeah, with- I, I changed a car battery recently and it's like full of like labels. It's like, exactly. It's yes. like, don't put this in the garbage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take yes. it to the special lead guy. Exactly. But the problem is in a lot of low and middle income countries, there is no special lead guy. There are people who recover lead in their backyard, in backyard smelters. Um, these are often informal laborers. This is their lifeblood. This is how they make mm-hmm. their living, right? Um, and it's very important to them. But of course, if you have an open pit lead smelter to recover the lead from car batteries and recycle it, and you're not doing it with modern safety standards, there's a lot of occupational exposure for the people who work there, but also environmental contamination. And sometimes this is done in the middle of towns and villages. So this is one enormous problem and source. A related issue is e-waste recycling. Um, so again, we produce uh, in the West an enormous amount of electronic waste, old monitors, computers, small appliances, large appliances, all of it. There are also low and middle income countries that are producing electronic waste. So they have their own you know, industry and use of these technologies. They're also producing it, although right now it's the West that's producing most of this. And this is actually quite valuable. The estimated total value of the materials in electronic waste each year is about $60 billion, which is you know larger than the GDP of many countries. Because So this ships- is like your monitor's broken or your phone screen is cracked or for, so it, it doesn't work anymore. You don't want to use it, but there's lots of 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know, know anything about it, but it's like modern electronics are complicated. So a lot of the parts of your broken thing are not themselves broken and you can salvage it. Well, even if they are broken, it's yeah. um, the raw materials are quite valuable. So I heard mm. this crazy statistic, which I tried to track down. It appears to be true, <laughs> which is that a um, a ton of old iPhones contains a hundred times more gold than a ton of gold ore. Okay. So in your old electronics, there are very useful materials. There's tin and aluminum and lead. Lead is part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and gold and silver and platinum. And they're in, you know, small amounts. But if you are doing this in bulk, breaking them down, disassembling the parts and melting it down, once again, this is, can be quite lucrative. But the problem is, of course, that uh, lead is one of several toxic substances that are part of these old components. And so when you're doing this in informal centers, not through formal recycling, um, you have, again, hundreds of thousands of people in low and middle income countries. This is their lifeblood to go through this trash to disassemble it and pick out the stuff that's valuable. And and you can see, I mean, you can, if you, if you Google, I mean, you can see there's a lot of pictures. It seems like, especially in India, a lot of kind of, um, it seems like, you know, like backyard smelting operations, um, like big fire pits uh, that are just quite, quite open. Um, and so I guess the, I mean, it must be very hazardous work, but also creating a lot of um, atmospheric, pollution, right? It's not, I have sometimes complained about NIMBYs and uh, land use and stuff in, in the United States, but the, uh, the the upside of it is that they won't let you just like smelt lead in the middle of a residential neighborhood, Yes, even with pretty good pollution controls. Yeah, this is perhaps the uh, only legitimate uh, use of not in my backyard. We really <laughs> don't want lead smelting in people's backyards. It's not right. a great idea. So, and, and is that, is this sort of like quasi-industrial stuff? Is that is that what drives the kind of worst contamination hotspots? It's not really industrial. It's generally on a small scale. It's informal. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, you'll get kind of cooperatives of people working together or basically, you know, it'll be a community or, you know, town where this is a big industry. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not really industrial. It's really uh, informal, mostly unregulated. And this is kind of what people do. They don't have um, like formal sector employment and they're and they're exactly. know, seeking ways to make a living uh if you if you don't have land that you own or, or you know like a regular job um exactly well and you know the other thing to say is in a lot of these countries there is no formal e-waste recycling right mm -hmm. there is no formal system for doing this so to the extent that it needs to happen that people need to dispose of these things that something needs to happen to it it's largely done through these informal systems. And so is the e-waste generated locally? I mean, because I, I assume the bulk of electronics are consumed in the rich world, right? And we are also more more likely to dispose of our stuff, you know, because it's old or a little yeah. off kilter. Um, but so then is the informal recycling, is that local or does like our trash barges end up in Chennai and, and people are smelting it in their in their house? It's both. Um, mm -hmm. So local trash, local e-waste ends up mostly staying local, but there is an export business. So the figures I've seen suggest that only about 20% of e-waste generated globally is properly recycled and disposed of through these regulated uh, industrial recycling plants. The rest of it is kind of unaccounted for. 
You sometimes see some exaggerated statistics that say the other 80% is shipped off to low- and middle-income countries. That seems to be an exaggeration, but it does happen. Uh, It's illegal. There is a convention that's supposed to prohibit this kind of dumping, but it does happen. It's, you know, they say it's industrial goods, right? They don't say industrial trash. So on the shipping containers. So there's some (laughs) amount of this that happens. Okay. Uh, So it's a mix. Uh, I mean, there, there's like an old argument, right? This was associated with um, Larry Summers, I guess, when when he was at the at the World Bank a long time ago. That that would be that that would be good, right? That low income countries uh, are poor. That they, um, I, I think his phrase was that there's like under pollution in developing countries. That it's an economic opportunity and a sort of a more uh, efficient outcome. And I mean, there's something there's something chilling about that. Um, but also it's true, right? I mean, the reason people are doing this sort of hazardous trash reprocessing is that they're making money off of it, right? We're talking about very poor people who don't have a lot of opportunities going for them. I mean, is there some argument that on net, you know, this is this is good to have e-waste available to recycle? <laughs> I don't think the availability of e-waste per se is the problem. It's mm-hmm. it's how it's treated and it's the systems for it. So I don't think the answer is to ban it. Uh, the answer is to help the people who make their livelihoods this way uh, do so in a way that's safer, that protects their health, that protects the health of the communities around them. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for recycling to take place, but there are both easy and then more difficult ways to improve the safety standards and, you know, environmental contamination. But I don't think we can just throw our hands up in the air and say it's efficient for, you know, children to be lead poisoned in, you know, enormous numbers. I think that's a short-sighted view of the world. Good. I'm against it. So, uh, so okay. So, so in America, right, we, we had a historical gasoline problem. Present day, uh, there's dust, I guess, from, you know, from former atmospheric lead. Uh, we have the water pipes that we talk about a lot. And there's also the paint issue. We don't, we don't use lead in paint anymore, uh, but there's a lot of old houses. There's a lot of old paint um, sort, sort of lying around. And a forward-looking basis, so you, you said gasoline is basically gone everywhere, um, except for, except for Algeria. Um, is, is paint, has that been phased out? Are we, are we done with lead paint globally? No, there's still a lead paint. Um, you know, it it does seem like it's less of a problem in relative terms than it is in the United States. Uh, historically, fewer countries used lead paint, but it is not universally banned. Um, you know, there's still, I think, over 100 countries where lead paint is, you know, officially permitted. I think, actually, if you look at the global picture, it's not one of the main sources of contamination for children, but it's, you know, no, nothing helps, right? You don't, you're trying to limit the additional lead you're putting out there. So that would be another good thing to get rid of. I was interested to read when, when I was researching, um, this in the, in the U S context that I think it was Australia banned lead paint. It's something like 1904. Um, it was like, it was interesting to me. It was the, the environmental, uh, problems with lead were actually known much earlier in history than I, had realized because I knew. I mean, this is a good, you know, smug millennial talking point that we uh, grew up in the '80s and we're not um, constantly bombarded with with <laughs> leaded gasoline in the air. But that makes it seem like people only found out about this like 30 or 40 years ago. But actually, all along, as far as I can tell, medical doctors um, were really concerned about about lead, and so I guess some places didn't get into the paint as much. And so, what I mean. 
what can we do about this? I mean, it's it seems unfortunate because it's good that people aren't using uh, leaded gasoline and lead paint everywhere. But that also means that the most obvious ideas for reducing lead don't seem to quite be on the table. Well, I have two more sources of lead to go over that maybe are a little bit simpler. Yes. Uh, And these are are definitely, well, much less known and much less thought about. So the first one of these, and uh, which seems to me a much bigger problem than I would ever have expected, is that lead is often added to spices to improve the color and weight of the spice. So it is quite possible that turmeric, specifically, contaminated turmeric is responsible for an enormous amount of global lead poisoning. So they're putting lead into the turmeric. Correct. Why? (laughs) Well, I think the, uh, you know, I think it makes it look better. It gives it a brighter color. It gives it a, you know, denser weight. Pure Earth is a NGO that does some of the only real global work in this space. They'll identify contaminated sites and communities that are suffering from lead poisoning, and they'll do some investigations to try and figure out what is the source of the lead. And they did one of these in Georgia and found out that something like 80% of the lead poisoning in a community could be sourced back to contaminated turmeric. So I guess lead is really heavy. Yes, so that makes it so if you're if you're selling spices by mass. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's it exactly, but I mean it's a hypothesis. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm trying. I, you know, my my, my great grandfather, I think, I I have his little scale. He 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 sold spices and they and they weighed them back then. So I don't know if he was sneaking lead into the jars. I hope not. Um, that's horrifying. It is horrifying, but that would be. Well, we'll get into this later, but I think yes. a big problem in general in trying to understand and address what's going on is that there's really terrible global surveillance of this. So it sure. actually makes it quite difficult to figure out where it's coming from, what the biggest sources are, and what the relatively low-hanging fruit is for remediation. But turmeric seems like it could be one of those things based on the very limited sample of good information we have. So then we had a, a last one. Yes. And then the last one is very interesting. It is ceramics. So lead glazes are often used to steal traditional stone and uh, clay ceramics. Mm -hmm. So if you think about beautiful artisanal Mexican pottery, Mm -hmm. what is that glaze? That glaze contains lead. And so does uh, earthenware from much of Latin America and, and China as well. And this is used to cook. This is used to um, to serve food on. And the problem is, if you do this safely, if you fire it at a very high heat, the lead will properly seal, and it's actually safe to use even though it contains lead. But if you're doing this in artisanal workshops and factories, A, there's occupational exposure for the people who work there and in the surrounding communities, there's contamination. But then also the lead does not seal properly. And so when you're cooking with it, when you're eating with these utensils, uh, with these cups, these bowls, it's seeping into the food. So again, that's a little bit more of a low-hanging fruit because there's education you can do. You can help uh, traditional artisans upgrade their facilities such that they are firing at a high enough heat. So there are things you can do there. So this is like the the, the cute traditional small entrepreneurs are probably the ones doing this wrong, right? That like what you what you want is like a very capital intensive, super high heat kiln, 
and people operating on a smaller scale are more likely to be producing sort of improperly fired or or even just just dangerous as you're doing it ceramics. Yeah, I mean, you can do it safely at a small scale without spending an enormous amount of money on the kiln. I think it's more of an awareness issue um, versus that it's not possible for small artisans to do this safely. So I think you can work with the artisans to understand the problem better and scale it up. You know, I think it's like I'd analogize a lot of this to the tobacco problem where, you know, we have some awareness tobacco is bad, but people don't understand how bad it is. And you have to sort of build that awareness over time. And as you build that awareness, you're changing how you think about it and um, and, and how much effort you're willing to do to protect your community and society from it. Right. So if people just don't understand that improperly fired pottery is really, really, really dangerous. Um, they may not be as careful as sort of they could be, but it's not, it's not like an insurmountable obstacle. Exactly. That's good. All right. Let's take a break and, and let's, let's talk about some of the solutions here. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris school of public policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So it it sounds like one issue here is simply that there is not that much investment in even monitoring how much lead there is and, and where it comes from that we we have some sense of of the levels of of sort of lead contamination children are facing but we don't really really know i mean is that right yeah that's exactly right i mean earlier i gave you a uh, big round number that half of children in low and middle income countries have this blood lead level obviously we have not actually gone to all those children and measured it right these are kind of heroic estimates and extrapolations based on small scale studies and monitoring we do not understand this problem, really, at a global level. Um, we don't understand, you know, we have some sense from small-scale studies and one-offs about what some of the hot spots are for lead contamination, um, but we do not have a systemic understanding of where it's coming from, what the biggest sources are, in which settings, and what we can do most easily to address it. And so the sort of, you know, baseline ask here, I guess, um, you know, if people are listening, right, I mean, you you work in the in the nonprofit world, right, but it's to try to sort of elevate this issue a little bit in the in the conversation, make it more of a priority to try to understand what the scale is, uh, because, um, I mean, I think that if you look at the the scientific 
literature that this is a very there are direct personal health problems associated with very severe lead contamination but what we seem to see from the research is that lower level exposure still creates um serious uh, problems for people for their for their neurological development and so it means that potentially the sort of external gains of cleaning up lead are are very very large, that you're going to have people who do better in school, who commit fewer acts of violence, right? And that sort of big, intractable-seeming social problems might ameliorate to a to a considerable extent, right? And that, like, we should really, um, I don't know, like, we should try hard. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, look, I work in global health primarily. Right now, the number one priority for everyone is COVID and getting out of the COVID crisis, but at and some point so. in the future, and rightly so, and rightly so, that should be everyone's priority. However, in the future, when we're looking at what are the issues we should be tackling and thinking about globally, I do think this deserves additional attention. You know, as you say, the first ask is just to raise it on the agenda a bit. If you look at this issue, it kind of falls between the cracks of different ministries, different areas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we call this a multi-sectoral problem, which is a very boring sounding word. But basically what it means is that, okay, I work in health primarily. This is not a top of mind health issue. You know, this is not on the global health agenda. My colleagues work in education. This is not the top education issue that funders and ministries of education care about. Other colleagues work on climate or environment. Well, no, obviously they're, you know, preoccupied with climate change. So it sort of falls between the cracks where it's no one's problem to address it. It's no one's job to fix it or figure out the problem. It touches all these different sectors. It touches land use policy and trade and environment and all these different areas, but it's no one's one problem to fix. Right. I guess, you know, if you think about it as a health threat to children, well, you know, it's not as deadly as malaria, say, right? Exactly. But it's impacting the whole educational system. Yeah. So, I mean... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it's not an education issue, quote unquote. Exactly. And, you know, what you what you hear from some education people is, well, what are we supposed to do about it in the schools? This isn't right. happening in the schools. It's happening outside of the schools. It's not it's an education problem, but there's not an easy education intervention. Maybe you can do some education about sources of contamination, um, say, hey, try not to play in the smelter in your neighborhood. But there's not that much you can do through the education system. So it sort of falls between the cracks. But I think you're right that the scale of the challenge and the problems is potentially enormous. So again, another one of these big round number studies that I don't put too much stock into. Uh, the estimate is that globally phasing out leaded gasoline has benefits of $2.5 trillion a year. And uh, I think it's about a million lives saved per year every year as a kind of cumulative benefit of phasing out leaded gasoline. And this is from, you know, the society-wide benefits, the better learning, better wages, um, all the rest. And, you know, of course, in the U.S., we've talked a lot about this lead crime hypothesis. I think the literature is complicated, but I think there is a pretty compelling link between lead exposure in childhood and, you know, crime uh, and other social problems about 20, 
years on. And again, I think it's we're in the space where it's completely speculative because we just don't have good research or data on any of this. But if you look at a map of global lead hotspots, it certainly seems to overlay with some areas of instability and uh, you know violence problems. So you see the, the Sahel lights up, Somalia, Yemen, the Northern Triangle, Afghanistan. I am certainly not claiming that this is a direct causal relationship. It is completely speculative at this point, but I think it is worth paying attention to and trying to get some better data and information on the extent to which this might be driving at least some of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's striking, you know, when you, I mean, I think people who are just interested in general partisan politics, you know, you hear a lot about asylum seekers uh, from Central America these days, and they're fleeing violence, and you kind of think in a hazy way, well, these are poor countries, there's a lot of problems. Um, but actually, like, the, the levels of violence in that region of the world are extraordinary, much higher than in other comparably poor parts of the world, typically. And it also does seem to be a big lead hotspot because of this, this traditional pottery, which, you know, I mean, there are lots of traditional industries, obviously, all over the, the world. Um, but this particular nexus of, of lead glaze is a little bit unusual. The, the light gasoline thing is crazy. I mean, in, in Beth Gardner's book, uh, Choked, she recounts the story when they first started putting lead into gasoline. And like the guy they went to as like a go-to scientific expert on this was someone who the government had contracted to uh, work on it as a chemical weapon in World War One. Um, cause like that was the, you know, that was like the leading, uh, the leading lead guy was the chemical weapons guy. And so he of course told them, don't do this. It's a, it's a chemical weapon that's now been banned as war crimes. Um, but they just sort of went forward with it, right. As a, as an industrial solvent and cataclysmic harms. I mean, as far as we yeah. can tell in, in our kind of broad estimates. Um, so then, I mean, if you, if you bear down into these issues that, that you were, talking about i mean is there sort of more forceful steps that could be taken i mean does the does the capacity exist to impose stricter regulations on you know e-waste recycling like is that is that something that that could be done in a way that's effective and doesn't have you know big negative secondary consequences so I think what comes out when you start talking about where all the different sources of lead are coming from is that there's no magic bullet solution here, right? It's not right. do this one thing and you'll solve the problem. But there's probably a lot you can do. And there's probably some that's harder and some that's easier. I think tackling for good e-waste recycling is probably one of the harder problems to solve. Hmm. Probably getting rid of lead in turmeric is one of the easier problems to solve. But you have to start by figuring out you know, where, what are these sources of lead? We need better <laughs> monitoring. We need, we need to understand on a more systematic level where it's coming from and research what the mitigation and remediation strategies are and what's most cost effective. Well, so wait, I've got a further question about the turmeric because so, so, okay. So on, on the one level, that seems easy in the sense that it's not doing anything useful, right? It's not right. like there's, it's not like there's some big economic upside to adulterating uh, your turmeric with lead. Um, but I, I'm assu- at least I'm envisioning this, that it's not like officially like turmeric with lead, you know, on, on the shelves at, at the store, right? Like it seems like it would actually be quite challenging to like force, I don't know what, spice 
merchants to improve the purity of their product if it's profitable for them to to slip lead into it or something? Well, there's probably a multifaceted way to go about it. I mm-hmm. think you know, the first step is sort of the supply chain tracing, right? Where is this coming from? It might be the case that it's, you know, many small spice merchants all over the world adding lead. It might be the case that it's just a handful of large-scale industrial plants where this is happening. So I think until we start doing that investigation and figuring out where the contamination is taking place, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to say to what extent you could have a regulatory solution for it in the short term. If it's coming from industrial sources, makes it a lot easier. You just kind of choke down the supply chain. If it's coming from a bunch of small scale producers, that makes it harder. But what you can do is you can do a, you know, demand side intervention. You can Mm -hmm. educate people to say, I know you think uh, you know, bright yellow turmeric is high quality, but actually you should be looking for something that looks very different because this isn't actually a sign of quality. This is a sign of contamination. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of, you know, public awareness campaigns targeted towards people in low and middle income countries that have been very successful at changing behavior around some of these risks. For example, getting people to sleep under a malaria bed net, which is not something they would, you know, normally like to do if mm-hmm. given the option and it didn't help. Or promoting exclusive breastfeeding instead of formula. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's plenty of precedent for, you know, people changing their behavior once they're aware of health benefits or health risks of some products. So I think you could look at this as a demand side problem. Right. And it's easy in that sense that you're not you're not even asking anyone to give up anything. Right. Particularly awesome, just like really bright yellow turmeric um, seems kind of fine. Um, And then how about the the pottery? I mean, how difficult is it for people to sort of transition to, to sounder methods there? I think it's a good question. I think it can be done, but probably they would need some investment and support. That seems like the kind of thing you could do through aid or government financing if you think it's an important overall social intervention. I don't think the scale of investment you would need to upgrade some kilns is that high. But again, I think it's an awareness question, right? I mean, there's a lot of traditional pottery out there already. And that you maybe want people to say, okay, it's fine to display this in your house. You're not going to get a meaningful amount of contamination by displaying this beautiful pottery in your house, but don't use it to cook on. Right. Think about the oldest stuff you have and put it on a shelf somewhere. Try to get something new. Try to get it from someone who, I don't know, is, is following best practice. I mean, is that something people are able to tell if they're sort of familiar with, with these industries? I mean, this is one thing that seems, challenging about it, right? I mean, the 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 improperly sealed pottery, I mean, I guess it it looks good. Like that's why people are still using it. It doesn't it it doesn't have some like visible appearance of being broken or defective. No. I mean one thing you could do is, you know, if the government of Mexico, for example, wanted to do a certification project with mm-hmm. uh, informal or artisanal uh, ceramic producers, right? It could have a program where it basically co-invested with the producers and upgraded kiln equipment, you know, educated them on the levels of heat that would be needed to properly seal it, had some overs- regulatory oversight of, of that production, and gave them some sort of certification that says this is a safe producer. Then you need a matching demand side intervention to say, okay, only buy from the 
certified, upgraded mm-hmm, uh, producers. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, you have to you have to tackle it on both sides. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so, you know, on the on the map, um, of, I, I feel like we we've talked about um, Latin America a, a fair amount, um, and this this kind of study in in Georgia. Um, it seems like Afghanistan um, and you mentioned Yemen are both really serious led hotspots. And do we know what's what's happening in those? countries um they are obviously like famously war-torn but i don't know if that's the cause or the effect or unrelated yeah i mean i think it's hard to say right now i don't think Mm -hmm. we're doing a lot of data collection in those uh countries on this particular issue so i think it's hard to say exactly what's going on i mean one thing that's quite sad is you do see data on refugees admitted to the u.s and you know from Afghanistan, uh, you know, over 50% of the children who come in have lead levels uh, above the reference level. Hmm. Well, I, obviously, there's so many problems occurring in, in some of these countries. It's it's challenging to sort of make a make a push um, for, for data here. So in, in your paper, there's this um, idea, an analogy sort of to the WHO's uh, framework on tobacco um, as, as a step going forward. And that was a little hard for me to get my head around because they they seem like very different sorts of issues. So what did you guys have in mind there? Well, okay. So here's, <laughs> they are different issues. So you're, you're right on that. Here's the way I'd frame it. They're both multi-sectoral issues where you basically need, you're trying to overall create a sort of safety or increase safety and control over an inherently dangerous product. Mm-hmm. But this dangerous product, in the case of tobacco, there's just not political will to ban it. In the case of lead, it actually has important industrial applications. So you're right. not going to ban it for um, for practical reasons. You actually need it in certain ways. But you need a, an approach that's coming from all sides to control it. Um, mm-hmm. That's spanning, you know, the health sector, the trade sector, land use policy, manufacturing. And so you're looking at these interventions coming from all sides. It's also the type of issue where the high level political commitment is really important, just getting it on people's agenda that this is something we should care about. And I think the other similar thing is that both lead poisoning and tobacco use are quite similar in that they are just health sucks on entire giant portions of the population with all of these second and third order effects on health and welfare. So you have these problems. They are pervasive in many countries. And you really need to start shipping away at them bit by bit. It's not going to be an overnight thing. You just ban something. You need kind of a all hands on deck attacking it from all sides. And I think if we could have some international attention on it, a treaty, a framework convention that says, look, we recognize this is a problem. We recognize Mm -hmm. it's not an overnight solution. But we think that if you attack this from all sides, you can make a dent and you should elevate this on your political agenda. We think that's a really good first step to uh, starting the process. Also, the nice thing about the FCTC, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, is it does include a reporting and monitoring mm-hmm. uh, part. So countries are supposed to report every year. Well, how have our regulations around, for example, not selling uh, tobacco to children you know, we said we would ban this. Have we banned it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the taxation levels on cigarettes? What are the uh, measures we've taken to help people quit smoking? Um, so you're reporting all of this and all of a sudden you're starting to get more data, more accountability, and just people paying attention to this issue year over year. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of a uh, like an on-ramp, right, to trying to address a policy topic that is probably not 
like amenable to like, I mean, in the short term, you're, it seems like some aspects of this probably can't be solved, but then you don't want governments to sort of say, well, I don't want to think about lead because I don't have a solution to the most intractable aspects of it, right? If you can create some kind of framework where people can say, all right, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting on the bandwagon. I'm going to do something. I've got some best practice here. Because, I mean, we kept sort of mentioning that the e-waste as a as a thorny issue, right? That doesn't, I, I mean, I, obviously there's things you could do uh, to sort of tighten up the regulatory framework there. Um, but it is a, the difference with tobacco, right? It's like n- nothing useful comes from people smoking cigarettes, right? I mean, you know, people like it. There's an industry, there's lobbying, there's things like that. But like, we actually wouldn't want a situation in which e-waste doesn't get recycled or that people don't have electronics. No, we want a situation where it's recycled, but recycled in a more efficient and safe way. And Right. So you're, I mean, you're trying to push it up some kind of safety threshold, but... And efficiency. I mean, you know, a a lot of these informal recycling operations are quite inefficient. So I think I saw a statistic that only about 30% of cobalt is recovered, Mm -hmm. roughly, right? That's a very valuable material that we need for lots of new electronics. And a lot of it's basically not being extracted when it could be. And the pollution, right. So, I mean, the, the, the pollution sort of stems from the inefficiency on some level, right? Like if you're... If you're recovering the lead in a highly efficient way, you're not uh, like spraying it around everywhere. True. I think. I, I mean, I don't know. I think so. <laughs> don't, hi- don't hire me to recycle your lead batteries. Um, well but noted. at least that, that's, <laughs> that's broadly my understanding of it, right? It's like uh, there, there, there is an aligned incentive in the sense that like your goal is in fact to like recover the components, yes. not to have people breathing them in or or dust uh, blowing all around town. And I think that is, you know, the long term solution is to formalize some of these informal operations. So mm-hmm. as a short term measure, one thing you can do is you can set aside some land out of town that's mm-hmm. a safe, safer place to do this. Right. You can provide some safety equipment to the workers who work there so they have less exposure. So those are relatively you know, easy things you can do on it. In the long term, you want to formalize it. You want there to be proper industrial machinery. You want those same workers to still have their livelihoods, but to have it as part of the formal economy that is working in a more safe and efficient way. But that is a long-term vision. Right. (laughs) But I mean, you want to make it so that it's not so onerous to get a permit to do it correctly, that nobody does it, but that the standards are high enough that it's better right i mean i mean it's a it's a it's a general economic development yes issue in in a lot of ways right like how can you get more people into a formal economy um and you know how can you have regulated workplaces um that are still robust um at at a kind of appropriate level of of development um but that's why it's hard yes but i think you know there is short-term harm reduction you can do even if it doesn't get all the way there and even there, right? I mean, so, I mean, we were talking about public education and, and so forth. I mean, I, I, I'm sure people working in, in this uh, field are aware on some level that it's hazardous. But, you know, people don't just magically have knowledge of exactly what the most dangerous elements are or what the, you know, biggest safety gains um, they can make are. And I'm sure there's there's something you can do in terms of 
public education to improve people's practice. Sure. Or just giving them, I mean, if they're doing it in their backyards, because that's the place they can do it, right? right? If you give them some land outside of town, maybe they know it's not safe to do it in their backyard. They just don't have an alternative. If you give them an alternative, they can probably figure out it's safer to do it over there. So if you're an American, you know, listening to this, if you, you know, in D.C. and in policy space somewhere, um, like what, like what, what could we do that would be sort of helpful um, in, in spurring some of this kind of change? So I think, you know, the biggest thing we can do is the high level political commitment, getting this on mm-hmm. the agenda. I mean, again, it's not the first most pressing issue that's COVID. But if we're thinking years three and four of a Biden presidency, you know, he's taking a leadership position in the United States to say we have to get rid of our lead pipes, right? That we are also letting this go on too long, that this is a stain on our society, that we continue to allow children to be exposed to this sort of poison. And we want to take the opportunity. We don't think children should be, American children should have this exposure. We also don't think any children anywhere in the world should have this exposure. And we want to work with other countries to help make the world a better place for the next generation of young children so that they don't have this burden of basically being held back by near universal uh, poisoning that is affecting them in all sorts of neurological, developmental, and, and health ways. So I think that's probably the biggest thing, right, is some sort of announcement of uh, high-level political support. You could imagine a kind of convention of some sort, um, a summit where we talk about these issues, where we come up with some sort of high-level statement of uh, intentionality. You know, a lot of it's going to be non-binding and a little wishy-washy, but just getting that on the agenda making it something that other leaders have to care about. You know, when the U.S. government says something's a priority, all of a sudden other countries feel like they have to care about it. So 2021, we're doing vaccines. Yes. Some summit. I mean, we, we, I mean, this is not the show, but like, I think clearly more has to be done on this. Uh, you know, internationally, I mean, the, the United States needs to do more to be involved in the, in the global COVID situation. Yes, we have um, a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> And, you know, that 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 should be its own episode. Um, But, you know, if if hopefully we see the United States, right, um, global public health becomes a big issue because of pandemic and then you have some good momentum and it might be a good opportunity to start talking about some of these other questions in a more elevated way, uh, because, you know, we haven't I don't know, the Trump administration was not that interested in global problems. Um, That was kind of that was kind of their signature. Um, But, you know, it does matter. It's people everywhere. And, you know, I mean, we should say this. I I don't want to downplay the lead water pipes issue um, because it's good to solve problems when you can. But we're really talking about in the U.S. at this point, a fairly marginal kind of problem compared to the the global situation. I mean, you were saying uh, at the top, right, we're down to 2% of people who who have the lead cases. Um, and it's primarily not related to pipes at all. So, you know, as long as it's on your mind, you should you should take this issue to where it's most pressing in the world. Exactly. I mean, again, that's not to minimize the children who still are affected by lead in the United States or, you know, to understand that that's part of the poverty trap. It's generally poor children in substandard housing with unrenovated peeling lead paint. So it's still a problem. But yes, in terms of the scale and scope, it is relatively small numbers compared to what we're seeing all around the world. Okay. Uh, Rachel Silverman, uh, Center for Global Development. And before I let you go, I mean, I, I do want to ask, um, do you have, uh, is, is there anything, you know, I've really missed here? Question I should have asked here, last thoughts uh, to, to leave with the world? 
Well, I just want to give a little bit of a shout out to some groups that have been working valiantly on this issue for a long time. Um, Pure Earth is an NGO that has been working to try and understand the sources of this problem, identifying toxic, uh, contaminated sites and helping clean them up, trying to do some of this tracing, which is why we have any of this information on turmeric in the first place. So they've been doing great work. And then also the Global Alliance on Health and Pollution, which has been trying to work at the policy level. But again, they don't have the resources or political attention to do all that could be done in this space. So great to get some more eyes and attention on it. Okay, absolutely. Uh, Rachel Silverman, Center for Global Development, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Chanakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.